Today on episode number 504 of the Teaching in Higher Ed podcast, Higher Education for Good, with Katherine Cronin and Laura Chenyevic. Welcome to this episode of Teaching in Higher Ed. I'm Bonnie Stahoviak, and this is the space where we explore the art and science of being more effective at facilitating learning. We also share ways to improve our productivity approaches so we can have more peace in our lives and be even more present for our students. I'm so excited to be welcoming back to the show, Katherine Cronin, and for the first time, Laura Chenyevic. Laura has worked in education throughout her life in one way or another as a teacher or teacher educator, working in educational publishing, and then moving to the academy where she has had a number of roles, including leading centers and research. And she's now Professor Emerita at the University of Cape Town, South Africa. Throughout her various roles, professionally and academically, there has been this thread that you'll hear throughout the interview focusing on digital and social inequalities. Catherine Cronin is an independent scholar focused on critical and social justice approaches in digital, open, and higher education. She co-edited the recently published book, Higher Education for Good, which today's episode is focused on, Teaching and Learning Futures with Laura. And she recently completed a research fellowship and co-edited a special issue of Learning Media and Technology Feminist Perspectives on Learning Media and Educational Technology. In December 2021, she finished a three-year strategic role at Ireland's National Forum for the Enhancement of Teaching and Learning in Higher Education, where she worked as digital and open education lead. She's a regular contributor to collaborative projects and conversations in the areas of digital, open, and higher education within Ireland and globally. Her academic background includes a Ph.D. in open education, a master's in women's studies, gender and technology, and a master's in engineering systems and engineering, and a bachelor's of science in mechanical engineering. She has been involved in teaching, research, and advocacy in higher education and in the community for over 35 years. Laura and Catherine, welcome to Teaching in Higher Ed. So happy to be here, Bonnie. It's wonderful to be here, Bonnie. Thanks for inviting us. I am so thankful that this is actually the second conversation I get to be some small part of about a tremendous work. I almost want to call it a work of art, but I don't know. (laughs) I mean, it's art and science. I mean, it's just beautiful. And I want to first let listeners know that we're going to be having a conversation about a collaborative work that is over 700 pages. So Laura and Catherine and I, I mean, there's so much we could talk about, and I'm just so grateful for the few minutes that we get to spend together today. I'm going to start with despair, but promise listeners we will end with some hope. What are some of the reasons why hope feels so out of reach in the moment we find ourselves in? I think I'll I'll start with that. 
it's something that both Catherine and I were starting to feel ourselves when we started this project. So I'm in Cape Town in South Africa. Catherine's outside Galway in Ireland. Very different contexts. And yet we would find in conversations that there were similar feelings, similar discourses. And we started exploring, is this just us? It's just this moment. And we started to realize that this is something being shared by a number of people in a number of contexts. And we are great people who believe in context. And yet across these contexts in higher education, we are finding that people are in a state of despair. I'm talking about academics in particular, but we could be talking about students too, but from an academics point of view, despair about the impact of austerity. I think very largely across the sector, the underfunding of higher education to a greater, a lesser extent. And then a discourse and a set of practices around casualization. So the kind of notion of this tenure journey and it all you know, if you work hard enough and you persevere, you'll get that job and then you'll have it till you retire. That's just nostalgia. So what what we're seeing also is, is unbundling of roles, contracts, uh, a gig economy. Worst case scenario is a kind of gig economy of academia. And the, if you throw that into the mix with climate change crisis, growing inequality as it plays out in, in different places, it adds up to a pretty despairing moment. And I'm sure Catherine has some other dimensions to add. Mm-hmm. Oh, that's that's perfect, Laura. And I, towards the end of what you just said I, was what I was thinking, which is that all of these problems within higher education and the challenges that we see into the future are within a context where there is so much insecurity, um, multiple forms of inequality, that are often intersecting the climate crisis, as Laura said, datification, broadly speaking, and particularly the encroachment of big tech in higher education. So it was what's happening within HE in this bigger context. And of course, we started talking about this in June of 2021, which was still the very awful days of COVID and lockdowns and so on. So yeah, despair was where we started when we started talking about this book. Catherine, thank you for tying back to what Laura said. You're, you were both reminding me of a children's book. It's my favorite book I can recall as a child. It's called Hope for the Flowers. And if neither one of you has ever heard of it before, I'll have to send you a note separate from this. But Hope for the Flowers is a story about two caterpillars that keep, they see these, these silos off in the distance and they just go toward them. They feel propelled toward them and they just start climbing and everybody's climbing and climbing and climbing and nobody knows what's at the top of this thing and they see some people I I shouldn't say people I should say caterpillars (laughs) being thrown off (laughs) these silos and that looks rather disturbing as we step on each other's heads to try to get to the top of whatever this is that we're climbing toward and you just reminded me of that story of especially Laura what you were sharing just you're trying to get somewhere but where is that that we are trying to go? And one of the challenges, not to spoil the story for you, but one of the challenges with Hope for the Flowers is really due to a lack of imagination, not knowing what might be possible for a caterpillar rather than to climb this silo and step on other people's heads. So um, before we get to a little bit about the role of imagination, Laura, I know you've got something to share on this too. 
I think I would just like to emphasize that it, Catherine and I sound like we understand what the despair is about. I don't think we did when we started this mm. project. And I don't think many people who are in that circumstance have got the time or the headspace to understand what the nature of the despair is. And so in our book, the first thing that we actually expose is what the nature of the despair is. And we say that people, you know that you talk about children's stories, Bonnie. There's a children's story that goes, you can't go over it. You can't go under it. You've got to go through it. Yes. So you have to go through it. You have to confront what this despair is before you can go to the next step. And so the beginning, the opening chapter, in fact, is an absolutely extraordinary and elegant indictment of higher education. And once you've done that, you can start moving forward to what you do what's the role of imagination. Yes, and of course, part of going through it is naming those things and the the work so beautifully offers up opportunities for these artists, these authors, these poets to name sometimes in a very contextual way and other ways in a very universal way and sort of weaving between those types of narratives. Yes, and and perhaps a, a good place for us all to sit in is never feeling like we could ever possibly truly understand, but certainly this this magnificent collaboration helps to to offer those perspectives. So I'd love to hear you share a little bit about imagination. I'm fascinated by imagination, and especially in this case, what kind of a role do you see imagination playing in bringing about higher education for good? Uh, the thing with the imagination is that it requires space, it requires headspace. It requires, you talk about relaxation, it requires the, the opportunity for a sweet spot. And one of the terrifying aspects of this moment of despair is there's so little room for imagination. And people feel that they have to have grand imaginations. And what we are hoping to show through this project is that little moments of imagination are good enough. Little moments of glimmers of innovation, not in the business sense of the word, but in the imaginative sense of the word, are good enough. Little opportunities for doing something different, even if it's very contextual, can lead to something else. So the, through the, the project, we have this notion of seeds and trees and planting seeds. And imagination is about planting lots of seeds, some of which will be shared. I don't know if you read Overstory, but it, you know, they talk about, he talks about how trees talk to each other. So planting those seeds of communication and providing hope through the planting of the seeds and through the possibility of imagination. I read a different book about how trees talk to each other, and I'm going to have to look up and I'll, I'll put it, I'll put both in the show notes. But yes, this idea, this beauty of the trees, and I have to share a quick anecdote, and then I know Catherine has some to add to this this importance of imagination. But I had the opportunity to go to your book release party before I had finished reading, and so it was so interesting. Francis Bell mentioned something called slow ontology, which I had never heard of before. But as soon as those words came out of her mouth, I thought, is this one of those things where something comes into you? And I just felt 
I need to learn more about this. And then it was so fun reading her chapter and going, oh, well, she probably thought I didn't do my homework. I just didn't. I did it in preparation for today, not in preparation for the book release. But yes, such a idea of the power of leaving that space and the power of the slowness. And then, of course, she talks about this fem-ed quilting project, which my mother has been a quilter for much of her life. And I I thought, and I I also love the book has so many pictures in it too. And I didn't, I wasn't really expecting that because not a lot of books have that vibrant and colorful of pictures. And I thought I have to show this to my mother and show her all these, these women that came together to, to share those stories. And of course, when that project originated, not knowing what would be to come and the way that these stitches would weave you together across countries and cultures and continents with hope and despair. Yes. So Catherine, what what would you like to share? Yeah. Yeah, About imagination. (laughs) Yeah. Imagination was really important to us and we were inspired as so many others have been by the work of Octavia Butler, who talks about using imagination, imagination beyond the given that we can dream our way out. So I love that you mentioned the FEMED Tech Quilt there, and there's a chapter on the FEMED Tech Quilt in the book, a multi-author chapter. We tried to model those values that we're going to talk about in this conversation in the process of creating the book. So we knew really close to the start that we would invite people to share their imaginative approaches, speculative approaches, speculative fiction. But we also wanted to stretch open the boundaries of a book and include artwork and photographs and poetry and ways of dreaming, ways of thinking to invite in those imaginative approaches. So we we think we've done that. And it's lovely to hear responses like yours that you feel that when you look at the book. Yes, so much. This next question feels unfair because there is so much here in this part of the book, multiple chapters. But what comes to mind for you when you think of some of the the changes being called for around teaching, assessment, and learning design? As as we expand our imagination, you know, what what do we then think is being evoked out of that imaginative capacity? Yeah, I can start and then I'm sure Laura can come in there. We, we the book is huge, as you said. So we constructed the book in into five different sections. And one of those five sections, section three is or section four rather, is called making change through teaching assessment and learning design. So for anyone who thinks I don't really need a 700 page book in my life, there's a section of the book that that we signposted so that anybody who's interested in like actual approaches and examples of things that people have used can go just to that section. There's another section which has a lot of theoretical approaches. There's another section with a lot of the speculative approaches and so on. But that section, Making Change Through Teaching Assessment and Learning Design, has single-authored and multi-authored chapters with examples from 11 different countries. So there's a chapter called Humanizing Learning Design, which used the work of Adrian Brown to imagine and articulate and demonstrate ways of humanizing learning design using the the writing of Adrian Brown as an inspiration. There's a chapter written in the form of a dialogue about assessment, two authors speaking back and forth to one another from two different disciplines about using ethical approaches to assessment. I'm I'm pausing here because I feel like we should mention authors, but I'm I don't want to leave any authors out, so I'm not sure what what to do here, Laura. Mm. What what do you think? 
I think using the examples of the chapters is it is great. Okay. Uh, yeah. So I'll, I'll direct people to, to section four of the book. So those are two examples, learning design and assessment. And then there are many with respect to teaching. And Laura, you might come in and identify a couple of those. Um, I think also to add to that is not only are there these lovely cases where people in a really wide range of contexts speak of what they tried and what happened and what they did, including in one case where people were developing a multilingual glossary about trees and they actually landed up going and planting <laughs> trees outside the university. So it's just these lovely cases. What you also see through those particular chapters is a set of values, I think. And sometimes that set of values is at odds with the measuring systems in the university because people are calling for and trying to enable and enact collective and collaborative ways of learning and ways of teaching as well. And even the assessment, which of course is the most tricky one because it tends to be so deeply individualistic in terms of exams, etc. I think that's one of the things that is strikingly present through those many examples. Is a, it, It's a different value proposition actually around what learning might look like. And I think you're so right to put the emphasis on the examples. I regularly attempt to remind myself of the context in which I grew up. It is very hard to imagine what it might look like without individualistic. I mean, I, I have two children and and when we come home and and they have wonderful teachers at their school who I have so many good things but who are hindered in the same way that I recognize myself as our our um one of our kids came home and is very proud as they should be of being said that they gave an amazing presentation in their class and the the teacher said it was the best that she's ever seen in her career and I thought like I mean it's wonderful and yet I think, oh, gosh, you know, <laughs> I, don't, I don't know. Do we want to be striving to be the best? And, and so I, I think about these things carefully with, with intentionality, just realizing on a daily basis my lack of imagination around what a different way of assessing may look like were we not to, to do it. And, and just to think about the words that come out of our mouths, both as parents, potentially caregivers and educators, and really wanting to do that with a, with a renewed lens for what these things could look like. Yeah. And I, and I, I see you and experience both of you as struggling because there's so much here that people have contributed in so many unique ways to give us these glimpses. And I love that it draws from the work of Adrian Marie Brown, among others, to say, no, you are not reinventing everything. You don't have to do the smallest of small, small things can transform the world. So, and when I think of your children's teachers, Bonnie, what is going to be rewarded? What are they going to be rewarded for? So one of our chapters is somebody talking about her journey in acting pedagogies of care and how the system actually is really in conflict with that approach. And she has to insist rather than be rewarded for, for a set of values that she believes very strongly in. And the tension that creates in the system and yet at the same time, the appreciation from her students. So it's despite rather than because of. Yes. yes. 
Yes, that's such a great example, Laura. And I'm thinking as you're both speaking that one of the themes in the book is about crossing boundaries. Some of the authors talk about it and we talk about it in our introduction. And obviously that's happening in the fact that the book is very global in the sense of representation and the various contexts. But even within individual chapters, that happens as well. And the first chapter in that, that section on teaching learning, teaching assessment and learning design is by is called a desi- design justice approach to universal design for learning. And it takes that very accepted and widely acclaimed model of UDL and applies a design justice lens to it. And it's written by four graduate students from the University of Cape Town who worked as technology advisors during COVID. And it's very grounded in their experience and their challenges of trying to use this model, which was developed in a Western context in a wholly different context and inviting people who might be using UDL to perhaps again, stretch their conceptions of access to maybe apply that a little more judiciously. Again, just one example. Yeah, one example of so many. How might vulnerability and humanizing learning play a role? I know you mentioned humanizing learning earlier, but anything else you'd like to share about vulnerability or humanizing learning? So I think there's a risk, and it's a risk that we see through the examples people provide, and it's the risk of a kind of neoliberalizing of individual well-being. So the system that acknowledges that people are taking strain, whether it's through the pandemic, etc., and encouraging them to, I don't know, mindfulness practice or something like that. So in other words, risking that their vulnerability becomes an individual issue and asking them to perform their vulnerability. And so although we have a commitment to showing the individual individual acts of resistance and agency, there's also a thread around systemic structural injustices. And we wouldn't want to be suggesting that that vulnerability and that that personalized care is something that individuals can do to resolve structural issues. And which is why we have chapters on systemic change. So there is another section in the book, which is about an entire system that is being reconceptualized as an ecology with a lot of different parts. And there are arguments made for open education and open distance learning as a system. So I'm, 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 what I'm trying to say is that the vulnerability shouldn't be simply an individual act, that as soon as you start talking about people in that way, you, you really have to look at the interplay with the structures and the systems. And high education, I feel like high education has gone so far into this free market, completely free market model that the pendulum has got to come back again. You know, it's, we're not, you're not talking about some kind of state version of, of education. You're talking about something where there is where steering and monitoring and care built into the system, not simply in the hands of individuals. Yeah, so much of that too. That's the the other side of that, Laura, that I'm that I'm hearing is if if it is based on individuals, then it comes right back to then it's our fault for not fixing it. <laughs> so it's exactly. I mean, exactly. And yeah. we, we definitely wouldn't want to give that impression. Yeah. And 
And we, yes, that was so well said, Laura. And we, again, in the process of creating the book and editing and working with authors and artists, we did our best to acknowledge the vulnerability of, of each of the contributors in, in developing the work that they produced for the book and sharing it with each other and also voicing things that can be uncomfortable and even dangerous in their own respective contexts. And that appears then in our what we call towards a manifesto, because we don't claim to have a manifesto for, for higher education for good, but we write towards a manifesto, knitting together a lot of what we read across all the contributions. And the last one of the tenets is make positive change here and now. And in that tenet, we talk about, because we recognized it in the work, the importance of communality and coalition, not just collaboration, but coalition, which arises from kind of political and social justice work you know, of of acting together. And so that's that's what the authors are doing in the book. But we saw that that's really how change happens in so many contexts, obviously, not just higher education. So just to add to what Catherine was saying, as she was, Catherine, as you were talking, I was remembering how important the process of this project has been. And you will have noticed, Bonnie, that if you look at the 70 plus authors and you look at their roles and their positions, they vary dramatically from full professors to professional staff to teaching advisors to students. And for some people, that can be really intimidating. And so, as Catherine was saying, the process of enabling and encouraging was really important. This was not a book that was, send us your piece. If it's not good enough, it's out. This was a book about, this is a project about giving voice and speaking to the concerns and asking what is to be done. And I mean, you were at the one of the launches, you'll know, people spoke about the process being enabling. Mm-hmm. And that might be invisible in the sense of when you have that 700 page book, for, but for us, that's an enormously gratifying response that people were able to be vulnerable and go through that process. Because we know writing is hard and academia is cruel. Yes. So before we get to the recommendations segment, I would invite either or both of you to share what's sustaining you right now. It, it is an extraordinary thing to to be at this stage, I have to say. Laura and I have, have had had weekly and, and sometimes many, much more than weekly conversations for two and a half years about the book. And now it's out and it's the work of 70 plus people all of whom have something to say and all of whom are having conversations about it. So it's, you know, it was a chorus of all of these people and now it's, you know, it's multiple choruses. So what's sustaining us is is that, the fact that, as Laura said at the start, we don't see it as just a book. We know other people, extraordinary people are doing work similar to this, you know, in this vein. We want to engage with them, with others, with people who 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 are struggling to find their own voice. We want to keep that going. So we have plans. This podcast is one and we have other plans to join other small, smaller groups and smaller conversations. But when we get to the, when we get to the recommendations, you'll see that also things that have nothing to do with books and text are also inspiring (laughs) each of us and art. I had a two week visit to family in the States recently, walking, getting outdoors, just all of those, those wonderful kind of bodily 
sustaining things are finding are really important just now. And I'll save save the rest for the yes, recommendation. Yes, I can't wait. I can't wait. As Laura mentioned, I was able to go to your book release party, and I had wondered what it might be like. And this this I I just want to say out front is very much me recognizing projection in myself. But but the comment um some some people stayed till the very end, and it was like oh, and then now what are you going to do? And we want to be involved. And and I thought like I, I on your behalf, I felt somewhat like you know what? Maybe they should just sit in a rocking chair for a couple of months and just do nothing. But but so but but again, that's I don't want to sound like I was. I don't want to personalize the person who chose to share their excitement in that way. I just, and it's so much for my, myself as I think that not to compare myself to the two of you, but I I'm, I'm looking forward to in June of 2024 will be 10 years that every single week I've aired a podcast. And so my plans are after you've done this for 10 years, you are going to take a month off at the holidays and you are going to take a month off in our summers here in this part of the globe. But, but that I have to say that feels scary though you know i mean it felt it like what a silly thing to what is what an absolutely silly thing to feel terrified by breaking a streak but again it goes back to my own context i think some of the real that si- back to those silos climbing 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 you know you doing 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 and not us not being very good as human beings at the being part of being human so yeah laura what's sustaining you right now so you, when you started asking us about the the provenance of the book we spoke about our own exhaustion Mm. and both of us have been people who have been filled with enthusiasm and activism and research as contribution and we were both so exhausted and the process of making this book has resuscitated us so we are now in the opposite situation you've just described ready to engage again it's actually been, sounds like a counterintuitive things to say, it's actually been hugely energizing, even though it's been a massive amount of work. It's been the right kind of work. It hasn't been stupid work. It hasn't been surveillance work. It hasn't been, why on earth am I doing this work? It's actually been heart work. And so can continuing to have these conversations and to give spaces and to organize for for the the author's voices to be heard and disseminated gives us incredible joy. So having said that, Catherine knows because every single conversation we have ends with me saying, and now I'm going for a swim. (laughs) So what sustains me is swimming in the sea, winter and summer. And that's one of the bizarre things that happened in COVID. You know, people moved out of the cities. So at the heart of lockdown, we moved right next to the sea and I've been swimming ever since Hmm. and in my mind the two things are interconnected oh such a beautiful beautiful picture I'm picturing you now Laura that's wonderful well this is the time in the show where we each get to share our recommendations it won't surprise listeners that I would love to recommend higher education for good and as Catherine mentioned earlier this is not a book that you necessarily need to read through from start to finish, although that was the route that I chose to do. But boy, those chapters, I, I, I think it, you recommended this in the the book release party, but perhaps starting with Robin DeRosa's book where that we really 
do just get rooted in the despair. Maybe we, we I don't think we want to quick move to the quote unquote fixes, you know, without that. But after that, I think after rooting ourselves and naming some of the despair, then there's so many possibilities. It's like the books I used to read as a kid that choose your own adventure and you're you don't have enough fingers of all the little chapters that you'd like to go begin exploring. But it's just so wonderful. And and I, I I love it for so many reasons. I love it because of the context with which it speaks, but also I love it for the broader ways in which we might reimagine books and reimagine collaboration. And Catherine, I want to do a little bit of thinking on coalitions versus collaboration. And I, I want to explore that more even after you just sharing that. So that's the first thing I would like to recommend. And it's a it's available where we can purchase it and hold it in our hands, but we also can read it online for free. And um, it is an open educational resource and what a resource at that. The second thing I wanted to recommend is, I'm sad to say that it's going away, a podcast called Tapestry. And so I'm going to recommend The Best of Tapestry. They have a page dedicated on their web website. This is a Canadian podcast, and they, on their website, call themselves Tapestry is Your Guide Through the Messy Business of Being Human. You'll hear surprising conversations and rediscover your connection to something larger than yourself. Tapestry, your time to pause and go deep. And Tapestry is one of those podcasts that every time it would come out on my queue, I just thought I was never disappointed to move it right to the top of the list and was just sad to know that the project is coming to the end. But it's part of the broader CBC network, and so the page is still there, and all of those wonderful episodes and conversations to get us think about that messy business of being human are still there for us to to go and enjoy and visit and revisit. So those are my two recommendations, and Laura, I'm going to pass it over to you for yours. So you will have gathered that the visual is really important for Catherine and I, and it was wonderful to find the extent to which this resonated for all of us, for both of us, I mean. And it was really important for us to be able to have artwork of different kinds and that could be in color and and so on. What I'm going to recommend is a little bit like tapestries, but it's actually non-digital and it's art. And we have been hugely enabled by the digital throughout the making of this book. Catherine and I have met virtually every week for over two years. We've, We've met with the authors virtually. We've run everything virtually and Thank goodness we could. But at the same time, I crave the material. And so I'm going to recommend something called the Paris Collage Collective. And the Paris Collage Collective offers a weekly prompt for people to make collages. And then people send them in and share what they've made. And it's about imagination. It's a, you can actually make them digitally if you want to, but I don't. I make them on paper with paper, tearing paper, cutting paper, putting it together in a range of ways. And when you look at what people have done with that same prompt, it is so freeing and opening up. And it's really about that space that you were talking about us all needing so desperately. So that's my perhaps unexpected recommendation. Oh, I cannot wait to go explore that some more. Catherine, what do you have to recommend today? I brought a recommendation which has links with Laura's. So funny, this happens quite often. But can I slip one under the door before I say that? Because you mentioned the quilt. So I just want to share the FEMED tech website, which 
you know, the network itself and the Femme Tech Quilt are such wonderful examples of crossing boundaries, you know, within and beyond higher education, feminist principles that, that can feed so much of our work. So I want to share the Femme Tech open space, as it's called. But the what I wanted to share as part of inspiration was, as I mentioned, I went on a trip to the States to visit family. I have family on the West Coast and the East Coast, and I saw both of them, and I immersed myself in art. I went to museums in San Francisco and Washington and New York, and Alma Thomas, um, her art just blew me away, and I was just, I've been thinking about it and talking about it since I got back, and in one of the museums, Moad, that I was in in San Francisco, I bought a children's book about her art called Ablaze with Color. So for so many reasons, if anybody is buying their children books, children who are who love artwork or creating of any kind, I highly recommend it. It's just beautiful, as is Alma Thomas's art. Oh, wonderful. Laura and Catherine, it's been such a joy to get to have this conversation with you today. And uh, Catherine, you coming back on Teaching Higher Ed after all these years. <laughs> I'm trying to remember how, how long Glorious. ago it was. I know <laughs> it's been a really long time. We've been through a lot, as they say. Um, you're both such generous people and wise and, and kind. And thank you for today and for all that you give the world. Thank you so much, Bonnie. And what a wonderful conversation and mm. authentic, mm. which is really great. Thanks once again to Catherine Cronin and Laura Chendivik for coming on Teaching in Higher Ed and sharing about higher education for good. Today's episode was produced by me, Bonnie Stahoviak. It was edited by the ever-talented Andrew Kroger. Podcast production support was provided by the amazing Sierra Priest. Truly, thanks to each of you for listening. And if you would like to be connected in other ways with the ways in which I'm thinking and wrestling with some of these issues, I suggest you sign up for the Teaching in Higher Ed weekly update. You can head over to teachinginhighered.com slash subscribe. That will get you the most recent episodes, show notes, along with some other resources that don't show up on those regular show notes dedicated pages. Thanks for listening, and I'll see you next time on Teaching in Higher Ed.